The Emerging Markets Equities Podcast by Aberdeen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Aberdeen Emerging Markets Equity Podcast. I'm Nick Robinson from the Emerging Market Equity Team. In this podcast series, we explore the factors that underpin our thinking on emerging markets. From key individuals to evolving trends, we seek to answer the five W's, who, what, where, when, and why, that are shaping investment opportunities in the region. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the energy transition and how this is impacting the investment landscape in emerging markets. Regular listeners will know we've discussed renewables several times, and we've also talked about the ESG issues that are accelerating the transition. But we've not really brought that together yet to talk about the challenges of the transition, and particularly what this means for some of the legacy hydrocarbon producers. And it's worth remembering that the world still relies on hydrocarbons for over 80% of its energy requirements, and that percentage is likely to be pretty large for a number of years going forward. So joining me today to tackle this subject is my colleague, William Scholes. Will, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Very well. Thanks, Nick. Thank you for having me back on. It's great to have you back. Will is the energy sector analyst in the Emerging Market Equity team. And amongst other responsibilities, he's also one of the lead managers of our sustainable EM products. So, Will, I think that makes you both a poacher and a gamekeeper when it comes to our energy investments. I like to think it means I can see things from both sides. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let's get started. It's been quite a time to be an oil stock analyst. I mean, perhaps one of the most unnerving moments in markets during the pandemic was when the oil price collapsed and, and even went negative for a brief amount of time. And now we're recovering, we're seeing oil price heading to five-year highs. We're also seeing huge rises in gas prices, particularly in Europe, and shortages of coal in uh, China, which is now making China shut down manufacturing in energy-intensive industries. So what is behind the energy crunch, and do you think this is likely to normalise as we go through winter? Yeah, it's interesting you make that point around uh, the the passage into winter, because I think winter is the thing that that really raises the issue on the agenda. And obviously that's that's down to the fact that you're starting to consume more fossil fuels, but it's also particularly around political sensitivity of, of energy and particularly of gas. Um, you know, Europe is still, gas demand is still made up significantly by residential retail, and that's even more so in the UK. Um, and gas storage is, is expensive and only accounts for a small part of annual demand. So that's one of the reasons why when your gas storage is, is low or when you have some interruption to supply or when you have a, a big uptick in demand, that can have really big uh, implications for the price of gas. And therefore, because gas affects everybody's heating at home, that makes it a very politically sensitive issue. And so it jumps up the, the search rankings and, and becomes a big headline. Now, that's not to play down the kind of disruption we're seeing there, but it is a, you know, it's a, it's a feature of, of winter time. And I think you're wrong to think about this as being something that's, that's only seasonal, you know, the seeds of the, of the oil issues, of the gas issues, and even of coal, they go back quite a long way further. Even before the upheaval of the pandemic, which obviously seriously impacted demand for oil-related products, uh, actually the industry was talking about underinvestment long before that. So, I mean, if we stick with 
gas because I think that's the most front of mind right now. Uh, at the moment, gas prices are coming down because finally the this more flow starting to arrive from Russia. There's also uh, stronger winds blowing in the UK, so that's helpful for changing the generation mix a bit away from gas. But you know, as I said, the makings of of this disruption go back a long way. So the rundown of European indigenous production, particularly uh, from the Nordics of gas, that was a big part of us having less than we used to. Um, the the fact that there's been underinvestment in European storage, the fact that uh, as a result of less investment in the US shale basins, there was less production of associated gas, which meant there was less gas being liquefied and sent to, to Europe. And what there was being exported from the US uh, was mostly landing in Asia because uh, Asian demand has been rising rapidly. And let's not forget there's also Brazilian demand because there was lower um, lower levels of rainfall. And so there's LNG demand from from Brazil that was at all time highs. Um, and that was competing. Now, one of the reasons why Asia and Brazil were able to pull demand effectively away from Europe is, and this is not the only reason, but it's a contributing factor. Uh, Europe was quite keen when gas prices were low to see more of the spot price um, reflected in the price that was being paid for gas. So uh, if you take LNG as an example, uh, when the industry was first being born, uh, many contracts would be on a long-term basis and they would have been linked to oil. Now, as gas got cheaper and cheaper, uh, off-takers were, were keen to see more of the spot price of gas reflected in, in what they were paying. And so unfortunately, what that means is that when spot prices do rally sharply, and as I said, gas is a shallow market and it's prone to those kind of volatile moves, um, that can really hurt. It also means that if you are um, if you're if you're committing to less of what you need in long term contracts, that you're you know you are li liable to to lose out if other nations are, are willing to to sign up for the long term in your stead. So these are sort of the, the, the longer term factors contributing to uh, the crunch in gas. Okay, well, and presumably there must be some similarities in the oil market. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities there, certainly a very, um, a very tight market. I think the, 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 the expectation that um, oil demand post pandemic would be very different has actually been been proven to be wrong. Um, oil demand is is back where it was pre-pandemic, and that's without aviation coming back fully. And so, you know, while uh, I think there's there's a belief that there's significant spare capacity being held back by OPEC, and that we, we only need them to bring it on faster to relieve high oil prices, what we're actually hearing is that they're struggling to bring that back on as fast as they committed to, and we, we might see you know even more of a price rally in oil prices than we've already had. Thanks. And of, of course, normally in a commodity cycle like this, the high prices we're seeing at the moment would trigger another investment cycle to increase production. But of course, this time around, it's a bit different in that ESG factors are much more important and a much larger driver of capital flows. Do you think that's something that's important this time around in terms of limiting the amount of investment that companies are prepared to make in growing production? Yeah, I, I mean, undoubtedly, the the growth of ESG factors within financing, both in debt and equity, is is a big part of uh, of limiting the, the investment in growth of fossil fuel production. I mean, you see that most clearly in U.S. shale, which is a 
a short cycle product and therefore was sort of was designed really for production to come back fast the moment prices warranted it and we've really not seen that happen precisely because of those ESG capital constraints. Um, I would say as well there's a more fundamental point around stranded assets and the the future of fossil fuels as a source of energy. So this is why prices aren't enough to incentivize growth. Um, investor attitudes have been for probably five years now not to pay for growth uh, well certainly in emerging market space most of the energy companies tend to be valued on a on a free cash flow yield and a dividend yield basis rather than receiving any premium for the growth potential they have in the long run and really you can simplify that as saying um, there isn't much investor confidence um, in a world that has to decarbonize rapidly in the future of those hydrocarbon products so what you really need is a very clear pathway to decarbonisation to unlock any confidence in, in growth in the long term. So could you talk through what that decarbonisation pathway might look like? Um, for natural gas companies, that is an, seems to be an easier sell because the economics of um, hydrogen derived from natural gas or ammonia are quite well understood. Uh, and, and additionally, the economics are currently better than, than green hydrogen. Um, and I should add at this point that the the future cost profile for green hydrogen based on you know, the kind of capital that's being spent on developing technologies and bringing down the cost of electrolyzers do make hydrogen green hydrogen look like the, the the lower cost energy source in the long run but that is in the context of not having seen much of a commitment yet to improve the economics of carbon capture utilization and storage uh, i'd say that's that's this technology that used to be the unpalatable last resort for decarbonisation, you know, kind of one up from just plain offset. But if you if you pair that with proper leakage monitoring, um, you, you use the, the reinjection uh, for enhanced oil recovery, you know, that might actually be the, the, the near term technology that really helps us to decarbonise faster. And, um, you know, decarbonising fast is just as important as decarbonising in the long run. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Picking up on the um, point about carbon pricing, when you talk to companies in emerging markets, are you, are you seeing companies include carbon pricing when they're thinking about long-term projects? And, and if they are, is there a fairly similar price being included uh, for corporates around the world? Or is it something where there's still an awful lot of difference? An awful lot of difference, yeah. Um, there are, I mean, there are plenty of um there are plenty of countries around the world that have no reference carbon price per ton. Um, Europe, I think the carbon price is approaching around 70 euros per ton. Um, and then we talk to some of the companies that are introducing voluntary carbon budgeting, and, and they're talking to a level that's in the, the mid single digits, you know, four, five, six, seven dollars per ton per carbon. And, and that is you know, that needs kind of consideration against a, a long-term projection by the IEA that the carbon price globally is going to be $250 a tonne. Now, you know, that's not a one-way street as, as more and more technologies are developed to decarbonize the, the premium for um, removing carbon, the premium that carbon warrants will, will come down. But I think we've got a long way to go and probably a much higher carbon price to, to, to incorporate before we see that price tail off. Great, thanks. And picking up on a point you made earlier, the, you know, the, the energy market, as you, as you mentioned, is 
hugely political by its nature and it's a strategic imperative uh, for countries to secure energy supply. Now, when you think about the gas market, Russia seems to hold all the cards as they look to open Nord Stream 2. But thinking you know, broadly, what impact is energy security having in emerging markets? And would you assume that now is a time for deeper relations between those countries that are producers of energy and those that are importers? Yes, yeah, I mean, I think the faster your economy is growing and uh, the earlier you are in industrialization curve, the the more energy security you know, plays a significant role in in how you shape policy. I think you can distinguish a bit between energy security in a purest sense and energy trade as a tool for foreign policy. So, um Yes, Russia is keen to leverage the the gas shortage to get Nord Stream two opened, and, uh, and 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 I guess to some extent you can't blame them. As I mentioned earlier, Europe does look to be seeking to have its cake and eat it, um, to to have spot price exposure and not commit to long term contracts, but then to uh, demand additional supply of gas when gas is in short supply. But you know, at the same time, that that pipeline into Europe is not the only piece of energy trade policy that's that's occurring. The power of Siberia pipeline is in ramp up into China. You know, it's the long term contracts associated with that that are actually taking supply away from Europe um, to a large extent. And another pipeline will probably follow that. That's the power of Siberia too, and it'll drop into the northwest of China. So there's no doubt that for, for, for Russia, for example, that alignment with China is a more important foreign policy goal than, than, than with Europe. But you know, that is to say that fixed pipelines for supply of dry gas are not the only way that you can achieve energy security. You can, you can build out LNG regasification infrastructure, uh, better gas storage, and also look to, to develop, uh, this is in the longer term, more dispersed sources of um, energy generation, you know, be that in um, anaerobic digesters providing biogas or small modular reactors in nuclear seems to be the, um, the new sort of preferred innovative generation source of choice. And that's obviously on top of the, the, the massive renewables build out that countries that can do it economically are, are trying to develop. Yeah, thinking about how the energy transition occurs, I mean, what, what role do you think fossil fuels are likely to play in the future energy matrix? Can the transition happen to completely renewables? Yeah, this is a, this is a really tough one. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I will quote to some extent um, the work done by Bloomberg New Energy Finance, because um, I think that they're the way they lay out different pathways is, is quite a helpful way to think of it. So they they split our possible futures, uh, futures which all of which are consistent with a one and a half degree warming scenario um, out to 2050 into a, a green, a grey and a red scenario, which is to sort of illustrate the possible paths you would go down where a green scenario, uh, the bulk of your generation is, is through renewables, through solar and wind, uh, and then you have mass employment of hydrogen combined cycle generation plants as a way of uh, storing that energy and you know supporting the baseload needs of the grid while obviously renewables are are, are more variable the gray scenario is one which employs more blue hydrogen and more carbon capture and, and more of the sorts of um workarounds i suppose that are supportive of legacy hydrocarbons and then the red scenario is it is much more nuclear focused. 
And I think the important thing to say is that even in a grey scenario, you're still talking about 66% of the long-term power generation coming from wind and solar. You know, it's very, very hard to to differentiate between those scenarios and say which one is which one is best. You know, clearly from a purist perspective, the, the greener the better. However, you know, one way to kind of I suppose contextualize that is think about the the sorts of gross energy generation build out you need to satisfy the green scenario so under their analysis by 2050 you'd need 122,000 terawatt hours of energy capacity if you go down the green pathway if you go down the gray pathway um, because you don't need as much redundancy built in you need only 62,000 terawatt hours you know energy generation and, and renewables build out they come with their own materials inputs and uh, and as we've already discussed, there are constraints on the supply of of materials now. So uh, if we're already seeing price increases in those areas, well, that, those could be exacerbated if you uh, need to build more redundancy. So it's a really, really complicated area. The thing I come back to time and again is just, is just that if we want to de- decarbonize, the most important thing is to get as much done as soon as possible. And so in the long run, it, it might well be that renewables can do it all, but we are already hitting bottlenecks there with the rising price of polysilicon, for example. And so you know, it, it, we, we ought to be focusing on exploring as many other avenues at the same time to, to decarbonize as soon as possible, you know, even if some of those avenues are our only transition solutions. Thanks. And of course, an, an avenue that's uh, reasonably well advanced is what's being done in the shipping industry in terms of improving emissions. And and there, I mean, do you gain much comfort that a, a complex global industry has has acted quite aggressively to adopt better emission standards? Yes. Well, I mean, I, I, look, I'm no expert in shipping. So my comments come from um, sort of thousands of miles away and very high level. But um, I am, as you mentioned, um, an energy analyst and so um i remember when the the regulations for imo 2020 so the international maritime organization 2020 regulations were coming out it's becoming clear of how much more ultra low sulfur fuel oil the shipping industry would have to use as opposed to the very kind of the very dirty fuel oil that was being used for for bunkering until then uh, and it prompted all, all all sorts of excitement about you know how refineries were were going to see expanding margins because uh, they would have to produce more of this ultra low sulfur stuff and so the more complex a refinery you were the, the, the better the margins you'd enjoy now that that never really materialized and there are many contributing factors in in that in terms of the global supply of heavy oils versus versus light oils and uh, you know the, the way that shipping lines reacted but one thing you can say is that yes on the face of it, the industry is is reacting positively, and I think ports and insurance companies and shipping lines are all trying to police this regulation. However, there are some other incentives that play into the solution that has been found, which is that because the solutions for bringing down emissions, which are effectively to 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 either build scrubbers to reduce your emissions into your exhaust or to refit the engines on vessels because the sorts of suppliers of those are at maximum capacity and therefore there's a limit of how much more can be done the most viable solution has simply to be to slow down vessels so vessels are running slower 
And that has meant there are fewer vessels to go down, to go around, sorry. Uh, and that's, if you then drop in the fact that this has been a very unusual economic recovery coming out of uh, the pandemic, because it's been much more focused on goods and services, because people have been sitting at home and considering, you know, how they're going to upgrade their house, uh, as well as being forced to save, that's been putting more goods on ships. And with fewer vessels to go around, freight rates have gone through the roof. So the shipping industry has been paid back, it seems, again, with my my vantage point is not being an expert, um, significantly through price for adherence to these emissions. And I think that obviously makes, well, that makes adherence quite a lot easier. And what about the aviation industry? Do you think that could be next for decarbonisation? I think aviation is a really interesting case in point because there really is no alternative solution for decarbonising aviation other than sustainable aviation fuel, which would be is is, is sort of a reliant on biofuels. Uh, again, if I if I recall work done by BNEF, you know, once you're talking about a journey over four and a half thousand kilometres, even in the long run, they don't see a future for electric aircraft. So it's really going to be a short haul solution. Now, if biofuels are the solution for or going to be the main supplier to sustainable aviation fuel, um, you consider that global jet fuel demand in 2019 was a little bit shy of 8 million barrels a day. That's 460 billion litres on a cumulative basis. That's three times the current size of the global biofuels market. And clearly, aviation is not the only consumer of biofuels. So aviation is really a story around growing biofuels. And, and then that brings in a whole a whole different set of complexities around biofuels, which, as, as they are grown, are taking, to some extent, share from, from food. They are using crops. Now, you can get biofuels made out of crop waste, but those are, are an even tinier drop in the ocean. So uh, I think you know, these are significant complexities, but it's clear which way, we, which way we need to go. And I think there'll be significant opportunities for companies that come up with innovative solutions on the path to get there. Yeah, I think that's, those are two really good examples of how the impact of lower emissions in, in shipping is contributing to the supply chain issues we're seeing. And then the aviation example just gives, gives some idea of the, the scale of the challenge uh, of, of the transition. So this feels like a good place to draw the podcast to, to a close. It's been great to get those insights. So with that, I'd like to thank my guest, Will. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank everyone who took the time today to listen in. If you enjoyed today, then please download our other podcasts from our website or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Watch out for our next episode and tune in. Thank you for listening to the Emerging Markets Equities Podcast brought to you by Aberdeen. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and for more great content, visit Aberdeen.com. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance.
The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.